Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Kathleen McLean, a programmer here at the Art Gallery of Ontario. It's delightful to see so many of you here for tonight's talk by Sarah Greeno, my faraway one, the letters of George O'Keefe and Alfred Stieglitz. We welcome you here acknowledging that we're gathered on Mississauga territory, on land that has been home to the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat through time. Tonight's talk is obviously held in conjunction with the exhibition George O'Keefe, which is organized by Tate Modern in collaboration with the Art Gallery of Ontario and Bank Austria Kunstforum. I'd like to thank supporting sponsor, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, generous supporters Tony Comper in memory of Elizabeth, Nance Gelber and Daniel Bjarnison, our government partner, the Government of Canada, and our media partner, The Globe and Mail. Tonight's talk is also one of three talks that the AGO is presenting in partnership with the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival. Our thanks also go to Penny Rubinoff for her support of these talks. The AGO is proud to host three primary exhibitions in this year's festival, Mark Lewis Canada, Free Black North, and the reinstallation of our photography collection, 1840s to 1880s. For those of you who are from Toronto, you might know that the Contact Festival takes over the city completely for the month of May. It's an exciting time, and we're very pleased to be presenting tonight's talk in conjunction with it. I would like to invite the artistic director of the Contact Festival, Bonnie Rubenstein, to come up to tell us a bit more about the festival before we hear from Sarah. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to see a full house tonight. This year, we present the 21st annual Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival throughout Toronto. I'm very proud to say that the Art Gallery of Ontario has participated in the festival since the very first one in 1997. On behalf of everyone at Contact, I would like to extend our sincere thanks to the AGO and the many very talented people that collaborate with us now each year. We're honored to co-present three primary exhibitions here and this landmark series of talks, which reflects our ongoing and shared commitment to expanding conversations around photography. Many thanks go to Sarah Greeno for joining us in this conversation and to Penny Rubinoff for her generous support. Bringing together a spectrum of photographic imagery across the city, the 2017 festival unfolds throughout the month of May in over 200 exhibitions and events. In museums and galleries, civic and historic spaces, on streets, billboards and subway platforms, and many other unconventional venues, Contact invites you to interact with images and the people that surround them. This year's core program, comprised of a succession of primary exhibitions and public installations, focuses on Canada in recognition of the 150th anniversary of Confederation. It speaks to how this nation is perceived at the present moment, looks back at its history, and reveals an extraordinary breadth of photographic practices. While some images capture the beauty and majesty of a prosperous nation defined by romantic ideas of nature, Others highlight very harsh realities and different perspectives on official narratives. You'll find extensive information on our website 
and in our catalog, which is available for free at the front desk and at all participating venues. So please pick one up if you don't already have one. They do tend to run out. And now, please join me in welcoming the AGO's Assistant Curator of Canadian Art, Georgiana Uliaric. Good evening and welcome to the Art Gallery of Ontario. It is my great pleasure to introduce Sarah Greeno, who is the founding curator of the photography department at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C., as well as the curator of an impressive and groundbreaking number of uh, exhibitions, as well as author of many, many publications. When we began thinking about public programming around the George O'Keefe exhibition that is uh, here at the EGO, it's a very proud moment. Um, we first thought of Sarah, it was our first thought, our best thought, so we are very grateful that she accepted our invitation. Not only because she contributed to the George O'Keefe catalog, which was published by uh, Tate Modern, and I'm sure that her lecture is going to be uh, an expanded version of that um, short essay that was in the catalog, but also because she is the editor of this unbelievable book. I don't know how many of you have it. It's rather thick. Um, it is the selected letters of Alfred Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe, and this is volume one. <laughs> this is 1915 to 1933, and I will tell you the way I like, I mean, it's, if you have the time, please read it from front to back. But the way I love to do it is you just pick a month or a season, so let's say October to December 1917, and just spend some time really getting to know Alfred Stieglitz and Georgia O'Keeffe. It is because of Sarah's great work. She was actually asked by Georgia O'Keeffe herself to edit these letters. Um, maybe she'll tell us a little bit more about that. Um, that we are all able to spend time and really get to know these extraordinary artists who have shaped the course of modern art in North America, if not the world. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Greeno. Thanks very much. Um, it's a delight to, um, to be here. Um, I have a fairly um, pre well prepared um, talk, um, uh, which I will read because if I don't, I'll get so sidetracked um, that we'll probably be here uh, tomorrow morning. Um, also, I want to read um, a number of excerpts from the Stieglitz O'Keefe uh, letters to you. So, um, just to begin, um, the letters between George O'Keefe and Alfred Stieglitz are passionate and poetic, vivid and compelling, um, and they present a profoundly moving account of two of America's most celebrated artists and an exceptionally important source of information on 20th century American art and culture. Between 1915, when they first began to write to each other, and 1946, when Stieglitz died, they exchanged more than 25,000 pieces of paper, um, letters that describe in unimaginably rich detail uh, their daily lives in New York, Texas, and New Mexico uh, during the many months when they were apart. 
in language that is sparse and vibrant, that is O'Keeffe's, fervent and lyrical, that is Stieglitz's, and immediate and unfiltered, that's both of their letters. Their letters reveal the development of their art, their ideas, their friendships with many of the most influential figures in American, early American modernism, while simultaneously offering often poignant insights into the impact of larger world events, two world wars, the booming economy of the 1920s, the depression of the 1930s, on two intensely engaged, articulate individuals. But above all else, as these letters trace the blossoming of their love during the 1910s, its rich maturation during the 1920s, and its near collapse in the early years of the Depression, um, plus its renewed tenderness in the 1930, later 1930s and early 40s, their correspondence is a deeply compelling account of the evolution of a relationship between two intense, willful, independent, and focused, but also compassionately committed individuals. The letters are so voluminous, so rich, and far-ranging, it's difficult to summarize them in a few brief snippets. As Georgiana said, O'Keefe asked me to work on this project um, almost 30 years ago, um, an honor that um, still awes and, and humbles me. In the intervening time, I wrestled with the complex problems of how to cope with such a vast body um, of material, and I spent a considerable amount of time sorting out the innumerable riddles uh, of the letters, their dating, their obscure references, their often, very often, illegible handwriting. Uh, my book, which Georgiana um, held up, my faraway one, um, was published um, in 2011, and it covers the years from 1915 to 1933. Volume two, which is forthcoming, and let's hope it doesn't take another 30 years, um, <laughs> will include letters from 1934 to Stieglitz's death um, in 46. Volume one, even though it's as big and thick as um, Georgiana showed you, um, is, I admit, intimidating at 700 plus pages, but it's only approximately one-tenth of their correspondence from those years. I do have, though, um, what a friend of mine calls the cheat sheet to the book, um, which lists about 35 of the best and most compelling letters. Um, so if you're interested, come up and give me your email address, and I'll send it to you afterwards. And you can pretend to have read it and be oh so smart with all your friends. But today, rather than focus on the difficulties I encountered in putting the book together, um, which I can assure you at times seemed insurmountable, um, I want to share with you a few of the insights uh, the letters offer into O'Keeffe's and Stieglitz's relationships with key artists of the period, as well as the new understandings we can garner about their own art, their working methods, objectives, and influences. Um, and I'd like to suggest some of the new ways these letters allow us to understand their lives, their personality, and especially their relationships uh, with, uh, with each other. But first, a few background details. 
When Stieglitz and O'Keefe began to write to each other in 1915, they were very different people. At age 52, Stieglitz was already a major force in the American art world, long a proponent of the artistic merit of photography and an internationally acclaimed photographer himself. He had founded the little galleries uh, of the photo secession uh, known as 291 from its address on Fifth Avenue in 1905. There he had exhibited not only the finest examples of the art of photography, but also some of the most advanced European and American paintings, sculpture, uh, and drawings. Uh, and he uh, did so there constructing a radically innovative dialogue among all the arts, showing often in rapid succession exhibitions of American and European painters and photographers who were often addressing the same subjects. An iconoclast of the highest order, Stieglitz exhibited not only Auguste Rodin, Paul Cezanne, Pablo Picasso, Henri Matisse, the first exhibitions in the United States of those artists, I should add, um, and John Marin, but also African art and children's art, both of which he saw um, as less objective or cerebral than Western art, more subjective and capable of divining higher powers. While Stieglitz was at the pinnacle of his fame in 1915 and 16, O'Keefe was a 28-year-old art student whose work had never been exhibited and was unknown to all but a few friends and colleagues. In addition to these disparities in age and reputation, O'Keefe and Stieglitz also had very different personalities and backgrounds. Exceptionally articulate and opinionated, intellectually voracious and widely read, charismatic and endowed with a remarkable ability to establish a deep communion with those around him, Stieglitz was an inveterate New Yorker from a large, close-knit, prosperous, and secular German-Jewish family. Born in Hoboken, New Jersey, and schooled in New York and Berlin, he traveled extensively um, in Europe, but rarely rest west of the Alleghenies. With his thick mane of gray hair, his intense gaze, and his signature cape, he cut a dashing figure in the New York art world and had been married for more than two decades to Emmeline Obermeyer, a brewery heiress. Although her inheritance helped to finance his activities, by 1915 and 16, they shared little in common except for love for their only child, a daughter, Kitty. Where Stieglitz's life had been formed by the cultured affluence and supportive milieu created by his parents and siblings, O'Keefe's background had been far more modest and her family more fractured. Born on a dairy farm in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, she was one of seven children of second-generation Irish and Hungarian immigrants who were far from prosperous. More intuitive than intellectual, O'Keefe had come to rely on her clear understanding of herself and her innate independence. 
with a sharp wit and a feisty sense of humor. She was also an astute judge of people and had little tolerance for those who did not feed her quick, lively imagination. Guided by a growing passion for art, she'd studied at a number of art schools in Chicago and New York, but unlike other aspiring American artists of the time, she'd never traveled to Europe, although by 1916 she knew the Midwest and the South, especially Texas, far better than her big city colleagues. With a lithe figure, handsome beauty, and striking appearance, O'Keefe was flirtatious, coy, and disarmingly frank. She confounded most men by her maverick behavior and her refusal to conform to conventional notions of beauty and dress. By 1916, she'd been involved with two men, but as soon as they became serious about her, she pulled away, perhaps instinctively sensing that they might curtail her freedom. As has been recounted numerous times, Anita Pollitzer first brought her friend O'Keefe in touch with Stieglitz. Unbeknownst to O'Keefe, Pollitzer took some of O'Keefe's drawings to Stieglitz in January um, 1916, actually on his birthday, January 1st, and he was deeply moved by what he saw. When Pollitzer related Stieglitz's comments to O'Keefe, O'Keefe wrote Stieglitz, Mr. Stieglitz, if you remember for a week why you like my charcoals that Nita Pollitzer showed you and what they said to you, I would like to know if you want to tell me. I don't mind asking. You can do as you please about answering. Of course, I know you will do as you please. <laughs> I make them just to express myself, things I feel and want to say, haven't words for. You probably know without my saying it. I ask because I wonder if I got over to anyone what I want to say. I'll read portions of several letters to you um, tonight. And as I do, note not only what is said, but how it's phrased. Because I think, to a great extent, it indicates how they thought. And in that letter, you could hear O'Keefe's highly unorthodox, almost elliptical method um, of expressing herself. Um, a phrasing that's reflected, um, also reflected in the physical look um, of the letters. Now, I've had people tell me um, that um, actually um, when I put these slides in, they've somehow gotten reversed because they've been unable to decipher the writing. They're not reversed, I can <laughs> promise you that. Um, um, in addition to, I mean, O'Keefe loves to have all these swirls and, and, and curly cues, as you can see. Often it seems as if she's trying almost to sketch out her ideas as much as articulate them verbally. She was also a horrendous speller, absolutely awful, um, which we corrected um, in the book of letters because we didn't, we didn't want you to be stumbling, um, the readers to be stumbling uh, over it, but it made it even more challenging to, to decipher the letters. Stieglitz's response is equally indicative. He replied on January 20th, my dear Miss O'Keefe, what am I to say? It is impossible for me to put into words what I saw and felt in your drawings. As a matter of fact, I would not make any attempt to do so. I might give you what I received from them if you and I were to meet and talk about life. Possibly then, through such a conversation, I might make you feel what your drawings gave me. 
I do want to tell you they gave me much joy. They were a real surprise. And above all, I felt that they were a genuine expression of yourself. I do not know what you had in mind while doing them, but I do feel they have brought you closer to me, much closer. If at all possible, I would like to show them, but we will see about that. The future is rather hazy, but the present is very positive and very delightful. With greetings, cordially, Alfred Stieglitz. That was probably the last time either O'Keefe or Stieglitz actually signed their letters, Alfred Stieglitz or George O'Keefe. From almost that point on, um, you could see that they both um, knew that the other person was going to know exactly who was writing just um, by uh, their, the penmanship in their, uh, in their letters. And you can see this sort of bolder, more confident, grand, and assertive method of um, expressing himself is reflected in Stieglitz's very elegant um, but also very emphatic penmanship. Um, Stieglitz's letters are very easy to, to decipher, so that was a, a plus in this project. Plus, he was an excellent speller. Um, uh, with these letters, O'Keefe and Stieglitz embarked on a correspondence um, that is truly exceptional. They wrote literally hundreds of letters between 1916 and 1918 when O'Keefe was living in Texas and Stieglitz was in New York City. Stieglitz often wrote O'Keefe two, three, four times a day um, during this time, letters up to 30, even 40 pages in length. In these early letters, which are exceptionally candid, we can see them getting to know one another and falling in love with each other. After 1918, when O'Keefe moved to New York and she and Stieglitz began living together, their correspondence quite naturally diminished, but they still exchanged occasional letters um, when O'Keefe was visiting family and friends. These letters are distinguished by their remarkable intimacy and passion um, as we repeatedly read of their longing for each other, both physical um, and emotional. Um, I can tell you that there were many letters that when I was reading them, I thought art historians just don't get this kind of, this kind of material. Um, <laughs> particularly when I had to decode who Fluffy was, and that will become... <laughs> Fluffy first appears just as the letter F, and then, then she gets named, but that'll become more clear. Um, although they married in 1924, we also start to see cracks um, in, in the marriage. Um, as O'Keefe wanted to travel to find new inspiration for her art, while Stieglitz was much more sedentary. In 1929, when O'Keefe began to spend two to three months of almost every summer in New Mexico, their correspondence again escalated, especially in 1929, when Stieglitz again wrote O'Keefe several times a day, often with letters up to 40 pages. In the letters from 1929 to 32, we see their marriage strained almost to the point of breaking. Yet as volume one ends in 1933, we also see them start slowly piecing it to get back together. The breadth and scope of their correspondence is staggering. Um, as you might expect, their letters contain extensive and significant discussions about the art and lives of the artists most closely associated with them, including Ansel Adams or Charles Demuth as here, Arthur Dove, Marston Hartley, 
John Marin, Paul Strand, and Abraham Walkowitz, but there are also fascinating accounts of their dealings with a dazzling array of other influential modernist artists, uh, such as Marius Desaias, Gaston Lachaise, Charles Sheeler, Diego Rivera, Edward Steichen, the Stettheimer sisters, uh, and Edward Weston. Authors such as Sherwood Anderson, D.H. Lawrence, and Jean Toomer figure prominently, as do museum directors Duncan Phillips, collectors and impresarios such as Elizabeth Arden and Mabel Dodge Lujan, dealers such as Edith Halpert, critics such as Elizabeth McCausland, and activists such as Emma Goldman. In addition to lengthy discussions about the exhibition Stieglitz organized, as well as numerous others in New York, we read about a vast array of topics, including the opening of the Whitney Museum of American Art, the destruction of Diego Rivero's mural at Rockefeller Center, and on and on. But what this laundry list of names and events doesn't reveal are the new insights that we gain from the letters. And here's just one example. When historians have looked back to this period, they've tended to present Stieglitz, his ideas, his art, and the art of the painters and photographers associated with him as diametrically opposed to those of Marcel Duchamp. Stieglitz is described as more emotional, spiritual, and someone who cultivated a nature-based uh, imagery. Duchamp is described uh, as a forerunner of conceptual art, a champion of modern technology in the city. And while these broad generalizations um, are true, the Stieglitz O'Keefe letters show that Duchamp repeatedly sought them out over the years. Stieglitz's letters to O'Keefe also contain the only contemporary description of his photographing of the urinal that Duchamp submitted to the 1917 Independence Exhibition which, as you can see here, Stieglitz placed in front of a Hartley painting and wrote O'Keefe telling her that it was the art of China brought up to date. Um, and a cross between a Buddha and a veiled woman. Uh, Throughout the 1910s and 20s, both of their letters include numerous references to Duchamp expressing their great admiration for him. In March 1917, for example, Stieglitz told O'Keefe about a dinner he attended at the collectors Walter, Walter and Louise Ahrensberg's home. Duchamp, having his studio a flight up, took me up to see his work. He's doing a marvelous thing on huge glass, about eight by 12 feet, has been over a year on it. It's all worked with fine wire and lead, a little color, very perfect workmanship. He has a beautiful soul. He loves the age of machinery, its significance, orderliness, precision. Miss Stevens, who went up with us, found it too static but Duchamp and I just laughed. The letters also contain numerous revelations about their own art, their aspirations, um, and their inspirations. For example, Stieglitz states very clearly that his life's ambition were to prove, as he wrote, that watercolor is a major medium in the hands of one like Marin, that a woman like you could be creative and that photography could be an expressive form of art. But he also wrote more eloquently that he sought 
to find an equivalent for that trembling something where the hill and the sky meet, that thing you have painted and I have tried to photograph. He said that he was trying to see this trembling line, that breathing something which is pure spirit between two people, a relationship that is holy, as I see the relationship between the hill and the sky as holy. O'Keefe, too, could be just as expressive about her intentions. When she first went to New Mexico in 1929, she wrote Stieglitz that the landscape seems to affect me like the music I like. It moved and changed constantly. She continued, I seem to be hunting for something of myself out there, something in myself that will give a symbol for all of this, a symbol for the sense of life I get out here. I feel like I felt when I first came out here in 1917, but the difference is that I understand the feeling now. It makes it all seem very rich. The letters show not only how both artists sought to become deeply attuned to the places they inhabit, but also how much their art was rooted in their daily lives and their relationships, things we as art historians sometimes forget about, I think. O'Keeffe's letters, especially after 1929, provide an almost day-by-day -day listing of the paintings she was working on, often with brief telling descriptions. For example, we can read about her 1929 discovery of a pine tree at Lady Dorothy Brett's home on D.H. Lawrence's ranch in New Mexico. Good morning, dearest, O'Keefe wrote on July 29th. I wish you could be sitting here beside me under a huge green pine tree on, on the side of the hill in my red coat, nothing under it. Huh. waiting to continue the sunbath that was interrupted by clouds. I have a sort of feeling that no one will ever come here, that I can sit forever. She then told Stieglitz about the day before and wrote, we, had, we brought a tent and sleeping bags. You would have laughed to see the procession of four boys bent with loads climbing up the hill to the big pine tree where we were going to tent. Describing her actual inspiration for the painting, she wrote, well, we slept up there by the pine tree, a stormy sky, then the moon and the stars, and finally the sun in the morning. And I, when I was up and dressed and had a bath, I went out to that pine tree. Everything out there smelled so good. I just sat and looked at the green in front of me for hours, it seemed. In between, we learn about the topsy-turvy nature of Brett's house. Uh, needless to say, O'Keefe wrote, Brett's housekeeping is rather haphazard. Animals come and go in the house, chipmunks eat up the beds, toilet paper hangs on a wire in the outhouse. But in this environment, though, um, where everything seems turned upside down, I think we can begin to understand why O'Keefe took such an unusual point of view, looking straight up at the pine tree. My painting moved very fast, she wrote. Tomorrow we will see what it moves into. It sort of knocks my own head off. It's such a queer one. As we become immersed in, in um, their worlds and their imaginations through their own words, unmediated by a biographer's interpretation, 
We can also see how similar scenes moved each of them profoundly, but in very different ways. For example, in September 1923, while O'Keefe was in York Beach, uh, Maine, and Stieglitz was at Lake George, New York, they wrote each other on the same morning of the moon they had seen the night before. These photographs by Stieglitz that I'm going to show you um, weren't made on that time, but they express the spirit that Stieglitz describes in his letter. He wrote, good morning, faraway nearest one. Last night was a marvelous night, a white moonlight night. I never saw any night quite like it, more and more beautiful. For a long while before going to bed, I stood at your window looking lakeward, looking at the white silences, the white night so silent. Nothing stirred, even the moon, full and round, seemed not to wish to disturb the stillness. It seemed to be moving slowly upward as if on tiptoes, moving through a house of stillness at night where all inmates were fast asleep. All was so still and the whiteness so lovely. The hills were not hills, they were something bathed in an untouchable spirit of light. The line produced where this spirit met the sky spirit was of rarest subtle beauty. Really, I never saw anything quite so beautiful. All night I jumped up between periods of restless sleep and looked out, until finally I got up and watched the break of day. There was one bright star above the poplar, the poplar so still, so dark, so big, rising into the sky as if to meet that star. The hills no longer bathed in whiteness, but dark with a few tiny dark elongated clouds in a perfectly still and clear sky otherwise changing color every moment, even though still night. The lake lay still and seemed hardly to exist. When finally the star's light had disappeared into the light of day, I felt as if I had witnessed a marvelous burial alone. Of what, I don't know, maybe myself, but I have no idea what that means or is. That very same day, O'Keefe uh, wrote to Stieglitz from York Beach, Maine. Um, and this painting um, was inspired um, by the scene that O'Keefe describes uh, in her letter. Uh, I hope it looks better on the screen, your screen, than it does here. Um, I apologize if it doesn't. Um, she wrote, my dearest one, last evening, walking on the beach at sunset, I saw a pink moon, nearly full, grow out of the gray over the green sea till it made a pink streak on the water, very faint, that told you where the ocean began and the soft gray blur of space was ended. And the moon grew hotter and hotter and the path on the water brighter and brighter till it burned so that I didn't want to look anymore. And we came in for supper. Later we went out and the streak on the water was glistening white and the moonlight glistening. The waves pound more and more and terrify me at night. I stood there a long time, alone, terrified, looking at it all. The moon sheen glistening on the wet sand. The tide was low. It was very wonderful. Then we came in, went to bed. I tried to write you. I sat in my bed thinking of you, pen and paper in front of me, and I felt utterly helpless. Finally put out the light and went to sleep 
feeling you close and warm within me, as you have always been and will always be, all of me seeming to cry out to you, for you, to give to you and to take from you, to give all that I have to give you, all that you can take and to receive in return. Notice the sense of give and take, but a perfect coming and going like the ways, body and spirit, souls touching, flowing together, all of me yours till I disappear. Imagine getting such a letter. <laughs> Email has nothing like it. <laughs> but I think that it's important um, to note that one saw the world in black and white as a photographer and explored the symbolic, even metaphysical association of those tones and scenes, and the other saw it as a painter in color and as an evocation of a union of a man and a woman. For one, the landscape was the source of intellectual exhilaration. For the other, the landscape was the source of intense physical, even visceral excitement. But what you might ask are some of the biographical revelations contained in the letters. Countless historical inaccuracies are corrected and the chronologies of their lives are greatly clarified. We learn, for example, that despite the myth perpetuated by both O'Keefe and Stieglitz and repeated ad nauseum even in recent literature, um, Stieglitz did not mount the first exhibition of O'Keefe's work at 291 without her permission or knowledge. She knew full well he was going to do it. We learn that when they married in 1924, it was at Stieglitz's insistence and against O'Keefe's wishes. And we learn that contrary to some biographies, O'Keefe was not gay, nor was she bisexual. She was emphatically heterosexual. But because of her own independence, she attracted around her strong, equally independent, um, and often gay women. We also learn of Stieglitz's deep guilt over the impact of his relationship with O'Keefe, over that impact on his daughter Kitty, and his remorse over Kitty's subsequent institutionalization for schizophrenia. And we see, as never before, the true extent of his relationship with the much younger Dorothy Norman in the late 1920s and early 1930s, and its often devastating impact on O'Keefe. It's difficult to sum up what we learn about their personalities in a few words because in this volume we see them evolve over 18 years. In brief with O'Keefe, we see her initially as a coy but startlingly naive 30-year-old, someone who could be both disarmingly frank and flirtatious and who prided herself on her maverick behavior, but was also often greatly unsettled by the consequences of her actions. We also see, though, how as she matured, she grew into a far more focused, shrewd woman, someone who, with very few models to follow, struggled to construct a truly modern marriage with Stieglitz, one that enabled them to be completely committed to their art and to each other. Yet we also see how at her core she was still fragile and easily hurt by Stieglitz. 
With Stieglitz, we see, I think, as never before, what an intense, passionate, and mesmerizing individual he could be, how he used the art he exhibited as a springboard to explore ideas and as a way of helping people to better understand their own feelings and beliefs. And we see his ability to touch people profoundly in ways that fundamentally change their, their lives. Yet we also see what a remarkably egotistical, narcissistic, and melodramatic individual he could be. Um, we see his intense devotion to ideas, often at the expense of personal relationships. And note how cycling throughout their letters in the 1920s and early 1930s is the question of whether Stieglitz loved O'Keefe more as an idea that is the woman artist than as a person. And we see how exceptionally, even arrogantly duplicitous Stieglitz was with O'Keefe as he pursued his affair with Dorothy Norman. But what new insights, you might ask, do we gain in how they perceived each other and how they presented themselves to the other? Here are just a few examples. Um, from the very beginning of his relationship with O'Keefe, um, Stieglitz championed her art as highly untutored, untutored and intuitive. She was a school teacher from the plains of Texas, he announced, someone who had never been to Europe. Yet her letters to him from 1916 to 1918 show not only that she was deeply engaged with the most advanced critical writing of the period. Um, in the fall of 1916, when she was teaching in Canyon, Texas, O'Keefe wrote Stieglitz about a faculty circle, um, a sort of experiment where we are going to have to give talks on whatever the committee assigns us. They have given me the cubist in art, and I'd like to scalp that fat old Latin creature. Um, he was one of her fellow teachers. Um, if he had any hair on his scalp to make a respectable showing, I think he has a notion that all modern art is cubist. I've got to get enough definitive information in my head to talk for half an hour at least, the kind of condensed information you can get over to folks who have no idea at all about it, or very funny ones. I want to say a lot in a little. Stieglitz immediately began to send her books. Clive Bell's art, Arthur Jerome Eddy's Cubism and Post-Impressionism, Willard Huntington White, White's Creative Will and Modern Painting, Rias Desaias's African Negro Art, as well as issues of his journal, camera work, and his publication 291, and the radical journal Seven Arts, and many, many more. So many books, in fact, arrived so quickly that O'Keefe wrote another book this noon, and now I'm wondering what possessed me when I told you I wanted something on cubism. <laughs> this is the eighth book this week. <laughs> and it seems like so many, and I can't say anything because I wanted the last two, and I just sit here feeling sort of helpless, like saying to myself, dear me, what am I going to do about it? Then it seems so funny that I was so disturbed, and I had to laugh at myself because well, for one reason, I know you would laugh. <laughs> um, 
Equally notable, though, is the way Stieglitz addresses O'Keefe in the early letters. We repeatedly hear him calling her the little girl, the great child, nature's child, yet a woman. And it quickly becomes clear that Stieglitz saw O'Keefe and her art in much the same way that he saw African art and children's art, that is, untutored, subjective, and highly original. In the fall of 1916, for example, after he sent O'Keefe his favorite book, Goethe's Faust, um, and she complained that she didn't think she understood it all, he wrote, to get all of Faust, no one in the world has succeeded, no man nor woman, why should a little girl? You are a great little girl with a big heart enough to hold the sky in it and all that the sky sig signifies. If you had the mentality you'd like to have, perhaps you'd fear the sky and so rob yourself of what is more precious than all the mentalities in the world. And in robbing yourself, rob me and others too. But we also see how O'Keefe in the years from 1916 to 1918 played into this notion of herself as an intuitive genius, as childlike and anti-intellectual. Her elliptical, sing-songy way of expressing herself was one way. Her refusal to, to articulate her ideas clearly was another, um, and that contributed to, the, to that notion. But so too did her own words. Well before Stieglitz began her effusive praise of her as the great child, O'Keefe wrote to Stieglitz describing herself as, as a child. In October 1916, for example, she wrote, if I had some fixative, I'd send these drawings to you instead of a letter. They are pretty rank, but they would tell you what I want to say, maybe. I wish I were just a little girl, about 10, that you'd hold me and let me go to sleep in your arms. And in January 1917, she again wrote, it's the end of a quiet day. Your letters give me a curious kind of balance, a conscious control of myself that I like. Just to know that you are gives me comfort. I am the little girl. Little girls are selfish, thoughtless, and I'd like to be rocked to sleep close to somebody. But enough of this, you might say, are these love letters. Do they show how they became more and more intoxicated with each other? Do they help us to understand what it must have been like to be in a relationship or even to have been loved by one of them? Do they speak to the quality, the intensity, the closeness, the passion of their love? Do they, as O'Keefe once, once wrote, speak of any of the fine, wild warmness of lovemaking, any of the madness of that love? Well, let me just say we should all be so lucky. As one reviewer recently wrote, D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller, eat your heart out. <laughs> um, in these early letters, for example, we see an increasing intimacy. After only a few months, O'Keefe confided, I think letters with such humanness in them have never come to me before. I wondered with every one of them what it is in them, how you put it in, or is it my imagination seeing and feeling what I want? A few months later, she candidly admitted, I'm getting to like you so tremendously, it sometimes scares me. 
all sorts of things knotted up in me in such a tangle, having, used, uh, having told you so much of me, more than anyone else I know, could anything else follow but that I should want you, want you in a curious way. It's a mixture of the way I've wanted my mother at times, but not just that, it's the man too. Stieglitz immediately responded, you are a very, very great woman. <laughs> And you have given me, I can't tell you what it is, but it is something tremendous, something so overpowering that I feel as if I've shot up suddenly into the sky and touched the scar, stars. A few months later, O'Keefe uh, was sending Stieglitz even more provocative observations. I, too, like only certain kinds of kisses, certain kinds of touches. While Stieglitz was openly relating the difficulties he had with his first wife, She's a really pathetic person, can't connect two thoughts, an untrained brain. Annie told O'Keefe of his dreams of her, writing, I took you in my arms last night, closed my eyes, I don't know what happened. In June 1917, when O'Keefe was visiting New York, but, Stieglitz, and Stieglitz, but before Stieglitz photographed her uh, for the first time, he wrote, how I wanted to photograph you, the hands, the mouth, and eyes, and the enveloped black body, the touch of white, and the throat. But I didn't want to break into your time, and I wanted to walk into the night with you too. I can tell you now when it cannot be. Is this sentimentality? Am I all mush? I'm sitting here with tears just rolling down my cheeks, so desperately alone and yet so full of life. Canyon, the plains, the night, Greet them all from me. You have brought them to me. Take me to them. What a wonderful thing a woman can be. Or should I say, what a wonderful thing a wonderful woman can be. And finally, here's an excerpt from a letter um, from O'Keefe in June 1918, after she'd moved to New York, but before she and Stieglitz started living together. You will be here in a few minutes, I guess, but I have to get up and write you. It's necessary. I must. I've been lying here listening for you in the dark. My face feels so hot, itching for you way down to my fingers' ends, an actual physical ache. As I came up the street into the sunset after supper, I wondered, can I stand the terrible fineness and beauty of the intensity of you? I do not know, may yet have to run away. It seems all too much. And lying here, wanting you with such an all-over ache, not just wanting, loving, feeling all the parts of my body touched and kissed, conscious of you, a volcano is nothing to it. No words I know say the hotness, consumingness of it. Still, some way I feel I can be quiet when you come, can control myself. Indeed, in one of the more interesting things we find out about in the letters, um, most of the most passionate um, uh, of the photographs that Stieglitz took of O'Keefe that first summer in 1918, the ones that just are so um, sensual, um, uh, so passionate, most of those letters were made before they actually consummated their relationship. They started living together, but um, we know the actual day of what they called Virginity Day. Um, you can't make this up. Um, <laughs> uh, 
and it was after most of these photographs um, uh, were taken. But it was this passion, um, this sexual tension, the energy that engendered um, some of Stieglitz's greatest works of art, and it could easily be argued some of the finest nudes um, in the 20th century. You might well ask, is it appropriate to include such intimate details about these two artists? Is it merely sensationalism? I wrestled with this question, and I believe the answer is yes. Their sex life was extremely important to both of them. It inspired much of their best art, and during difficult times, it was clearly one of the things that kept them together. O'Keefe herself in her later years was very open about the importance of her physical relationship with O'Keefe. Moreover, when O'Keefe asked me to compile a book of hers and Stieglitz's letters, she had only two stipulations, make it beautiful and make it honest. I couldn't give an honest presentation of their correspondence, their love and their relationship without referring to their sexual relationship. I want to close with two letters written in the summer of 1929. Um, I think they'll give you both a richer sense of the character of, the, of their prose and also the reasons why the references to their sexual life have to be included. And they also show the kind of dialogue that I tried to set up um, in the book for the selection of the letters. Um, a few background details. 1929 was um, the first summer that O'Keefe spent in New Mexico, and at several points, Stieglitz became frantic, really almost unhinged, um, fearful that he had lost O'Keefe to the Southwest, that she was being unfaithful to him and neglectful of her art. And in her absence, he wrote um, O'Keefe, again, sort of three, four, five times a day, um, again, letters up to 40 pages in length. The letter that I'm going to read you is 26 pages long. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm only reading parts of it. Um, but it begins with an account of a dream, Stieglitz head, of, of making love to O'Keefe. It is X-rated, um, and although this does seem like a fairly mature um, audience, um, I'll, um, uh, I'll spare you and not translate some of their, um, their pet names, which I think are fairly obvious. But if D.H. Lawrence or Henry Miller make you uncomfortable, then cover your ears and have your neighbor nudge you when I'm finished. Um, Stieglitz wrote, I fell asleep and dreamt you had come and we were in the bathroom together, both naked. You turned around, stooped down, and with your hands pulled Fluffy open. I had a terrific erection. Fluffy looked like the black iris, which next to the blue lines is closest to my heart. And as I took hold of you and rammed my little man into you, you said with sighs, sighs so deep, so heartbreaking, you must not leave him no matter what happens. And I saw Fluffy and felt like God must feel. And you were beside yourself and yelled, don't take him out. I'll hear that voice to my dying day, the agony of it. I awoke, thank all that is that I had this dream. I'll admit this letter gave me pause. Um, we, <laughs> you know, such juicy material is not you know, part of my normal daily work. Um, 
But Stieglitz followed it with a very honest account of what he perceived to be the difficulties in their relationship, including his daughter's illness, O'Keefe's lack of interest in the last few years in his own photography, and his gallery at that point, the intimate gallery, which he referred to as the room, um, but which he said O'Keefe called his sitting room, which stabbed me to the quick. He noted how he had worked to earn enough money for her so that after his death she would have no worries. And he continued, not long before you left, you said that I no longer cared for you. You had grown older and I only cared for younger ones. Georgia, Georgia, you have, have you any idea how cruel these remarks, how unfair, I adoring the ground you stood on, I singing your praises to all. Just because a few young people came to the room, you could say what you did. But my God, I was canonizing you day and night for 13 years, as no woman living in the past has ever been canonized, which is, which is absolutely true. Many pages later, when he had spent his anger, he ended the letter far more contrite uh, than he began, and he wrote, let me kiss you on the mouth. Let me kiss your neck behind the eyes. Let me kiss each eye and mouth again. Let me kiss the abdomen, each breast, each side of your sweetest of all behinds. Let me kiss Fluffy, every part of her, and be there. Then let me hold you firmly and let happen what will. I think were you here now, I'd risk all. Madness, I know, but I'm mad with you, penetrating every fiber of me. Every pulse beat is you, and you ought to know it, and you don't. I know this letter must sound broken and not beautiful, not flowing, not as I should like it to be. But I'm not flowing, not beautiful these days. I'm broken, and I don't like myself at all. But I'm trying hard to find my line again. You'll help me. I must believe you will, won't you? O'Keefe responded a few days later, and again, I'll just read parts of the letter. Last night, your letters put me in such a daze, I didn't seem to have enough thought to write. I can't tell you how sorry I am that you've been so distressed. It was entirely unnecessary. I assure you, if anything goes wrong, we wouldn't be six days in telling you about it. As for the other things you write of, of the past, things that have hurt me and things that have hurt you, I have purposely not written of them or remarked on them because of the distance between us, the long times between letters, and possibly because I do not want to hurt you. I have put out my hand to you so many times of late, and more often than not felt you turn away from me. In the room, you usually made me feel you were just waiting for me to go. You feel that I'm mistaken in many things. Going into it all does not lead anywhere. You really need have no regrets about me. I have not really had my way of life for many years. When I felt very close to you, there was a home for me really within you. I could live, I will say, your way as much as it was possible for me to live another way. But when that seemed gone, there is much life in me. When it was checked and moving towards you, I realized it would die if it could not move towards something. Here it seems to be moving in every direction. There it did not seem to be moving at all. It seemed only to meet coldness. Now listen, boy, I am all right. What is between us is all right, and I don't want you to worry about me. 
You see, I feel if I hadn't come away, I would have irritated you. Being away, you worry. There seems to be no chance for me to come out right. And I chose coming away because here at least I feel good. And it makes me feel I am growing very tall and straight inside and very still. Maybe you will not love me for it, but for me it seems to be the best thing I can do for you. I hope this letter carries no hurt to you. It is the last thing I want to do in the world. Please leave your regrets and all your sadness and misery. If I had hung on to mine in my heart as you are doing, I could not walk out the door and let the sun shine into me as it has, and I could not feel the stars touch the center of me as they do out there on the hills at night, or feel the silver of the sagebrush way off in the distance as well as nearby seem to touch my lips and cheek as it does. I kiss, little boy. I have not wanted to be anything but kind to you, but there is nothing to be kind to you if I cannot be me. And me is something that reaches very far out into the world and all around and kisses you a very warm, cool, loving kiss. Thank you.